whether both sons are lost in the parable of the prodigal son. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What do you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. All past episodes of Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations can both be found at the website www.inappropriateconversations.org. There's an index for months and dates, and also a category index that can be used to find different drummers on the Inappropriate Conversations podcast. Both of these podcasts share an RSS feed. You can listen to them wherever you find podcasts, including Stitcher Smart Radio. The other ways to interact with the show are via email, ic underscore greg at hotmail.com, Twitter, where I am at ic underscore greg, there's a Facebook page for Walk the Earth as a podcast. There's also one for Inappropriate Conversations. This is the place where they're separate from each other. And I'm also posting old episodes of Inappropriate Conversations on SoundCloud. As I get back to that at some point, I may catch up to the point of posting clips from Walk the Earth as well. Today, though, I want to do something I've done a couple of times in years past on Inappropriate Conversations, but I'm not sure I've done it quite this way before on Walk the Earth. I want to share a message that has been delivered in church in front of a congregation on the topic of the prodigal son, the church that I now attend, the church that we walked to in this Walk the Earth process, did something with the laity this summer in asking four different members of the church to give their take on the parable of the prodigal son. I was, uh, because of travels and other things, the last one to uh, to cover it, the last speaker in the series. And that was fine by me because I wanted to look pretty late into the parable and look at the entire story from the perspective of the older brother. But we'll get there in just a moment. The other thing I want to do on this particular episode of Walk the Earth is share a blog post that I've put online at inappropriateconversations.org. It's a political season, and Walk the Earth is not necessarily a political show. But I have taken a look at one of the pressing issues that's come back into the debates and other commentary around the campaign here in 2016, mainly brought up by the supporters of Donald Trump, wanting to look at that particular issue from a distinctly Christian perspective. So look at this show as being essentially two parts. And the first part will start with Luke chapter 15 in its entirety. One day, when many tax collectors and other outcasts came to listen to Jesus... The Pharisees and the teachers of the law started grumbling. This man welcomes outcasts and even eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. What do you do? You leave the other ninety-nine sheep in the pasture and go looking for the one that got lost until you find it. When you find it, you are so happy that you put it on your shoulders and carry it back home. Then you call your friends and neighbors together and say to them, I am so happy I found my lost sheep. Let us celebrate. In the same way I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 respectable people who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman who has 10 silver coins loses one of them. What does she do? She lights a lamp, sweeps her house, 
and looks carefully everywhere until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says to them, I am so happy I found the coin I lost. Let us celebrate. In the same way I tell you, the angels of God rejoice over one sinner who repents. Jesus went on to say, There once was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to him, Father, give me my share of the property now. So the man divided his property between his two sons. After a few days, the younger son sold his part of the property and left home with the money. He went to a country far away, where he wasted his money in reckless living. He spent everything he had. Then a severe famine spread over that country, and he was left without a thing. So he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him out to his farm to take care of the pigs. He wished he could fill himself with the bean pods the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything to eat. At last he came to his senses and said, All my father's hired workers have more than they can eat, and here I am about to starve. I will get up and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. So he got up and started back to his father. He was still a long way from home when his father saw him, his heart filled with pity, and he ran, threw his arms around his son, and kissed him. Father, the son said, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. But the father called to his servants. Hurry, he said. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Then go and get the prized calf and kill it, and let us celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but now he has been found. And so the feasting began. In the meantime, the older brother was out in the field. On his way back, when he came close to the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come back home, the servant answered, and your father has killed the prized calf because he got him back safe and sound. The older brother was so angry that he would not go into the house. So his father came out and begged him to come in. But he spoke back to his father. Look, all these years I have worked for you like a slave, and I've never disobeyed your orders. What have you given me? Not even a goat for me to have a feast with my friends. But this son of yours wasted all your property on prostitutes. And when he comes back home, you kill the prize calf for him. My son, the father answered, you are always here with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be happy because your brother was dead. But now he is alive. He was lost. But now he has been found. Luke chapter 15. And I focused on verses 28 and 29 in particular in a message I called Deserve. The older brother was so angry that he would not go back into the house. So his father came out and begged him to come in, but he spoke back to his father. I never have been certain that I have much of a testimony. I don't get to tell a lot of tales about wild living and unexpected repentance. I've never been much of a Saul, so I don't have a compelling road to Damascus story. If I've been the black sheep of my family... It says much more about the whiteness of my family than any surprising secrets in my past. 
I've never used an illegal drug. Don't smoke and never will. Have never not been part of the church. Next year will be the 30th wedding anniversary for my wife and me, and 36 years since our first date. I'm not older than I look, so there are no wild oats. My challenge is not the fast living of the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. My risk is the privilege of the older brother. I intend to focus there for that reason. We know the story because it's been covered throughout the month of July. It's one of the most familiar of Jesus' parables. The younger son asked for his inheritance while his father was still alive. Knowing his older brother was set from an estate perspective, likely to take control after the father died, and unlikely to share that control, based on what we learned about the older brother in the story. What was he waiting for? That was the younger brother's question. So the kid sought what he thought he deserved. Deserved. Why did the father so casually cut his net worth in half, ignoring this brat's insulting presumption at the same time? Surely that would negatively impact his kingdom, right, if if only the short-term cash flow. More on that later, the meaning of kingdom. As I said, I intend to focus on the older son. He had a different, more negative notion of deserve. They get what they deserve, being the key concept. When the kid returns, the story takes two interesting twists. First, the grace of the father. Second, the judgment of the eldest son. His younger brother hadn't earned their father's generosity. He didn't deserve it. Deserve. Do we see the problem? In the screenplay David Webb Peoples wrote for the 1992 Clint Eastwood film Unforgiven, a young character named the Schofield Kid tried to justify their assassinations in a murder-for-hire, saying, Yeah, well... I guess they had it coming. Will, Eastwood's character, replies softly, We all got it coming, kid. None of us deserve grace. Deserve. Modern evangelical Christianity includes a group that might be described as the holiness movement, a reference going all the way back to the 1800s. Legalistic, obsessed with the possibility of Christian perfection for believers in this lifetime. This group could, but wouldn't, claim the elder brother in Luke chapter 15 as their inspiration. I have a couple of problems with these folks. For one, I need to resist unwittingly affiliating myself with their worldview in my own judgments. I could easily discriminate against casual drug users or casually promiscuous people, even as the black sheep of my family. The only thing that stops me, I suppose, is being more intolerant of intolerance than anything else. The bigger problem with the holiness movement, though, is their philosophy and how it denies God's power. They believe that it is crucial that we, we, create a world without sin to preserve the holiness of God. It's as if God has to be protected somehow. The Lord simply can't manage alone. At its worst, this philosophy suggests that the Holy Spirit simply cannot be trusted. We have to manage conversion, monitor repentance, and keep sin people sinless on God's behalf. Instead of opening their doors to whatever providence may bring, a lost wayward son, for example, 
Holiness movement thinking would never let someone who ate with pigs back into this house. Imagine something for a moment. Imagine with me. What if the older brother protected his father, not unlike the holiness movement reference I've just made, by stepping in first to greet the younger brother? Wouldn't the best robe remain in the closet? The ring in the jewelry box? Certainly no feast. In his 2011 book, Love Wins, Rob Bell describes a painting in his grandmother's house that he and his sister found more disturbing than comforting. I'll let him describe the image of a flaming pit and a huge cross, not unlike a bridge that people could walk across. Here's Bell. In the center of the picture is a massive cross, big enough for people to walk on. It hangs suspended in space, floating above an ominous red and black realm that threatens to swallow up whoever takes a wrong step. The people in the picture walking on the cross are clearly headed somewhere, and that somewhere is a city, a gleaming, bright city with a wall around it and lots of sunshine. It's as if Thomas Kincaid and Dante were at a party, and one turned to the other one sometime after midnight and uttered that classic line, you know, we, sh we should really work together sometime. Do you have that image in your mind? We can look at the Father in this parable as God. That seems to be what Jesus intended. To many Christians, then, that would put the Father over there in the gleaming bright city. God is in heaven. That, in this moment we're having together, is heaven. Notice that Jesus doesn't leave God there in the parable of the prodigal son. God isn't trapped in a fortress guarded carefully by the holiness movement, making sure that our Lord doesn't accidentally rub elbows with the likes of them. I see the Father as a large, welcome sign. If he is on the bright side of the bridge when the younger son is making his way home, he certainly sprints to the darker side of the bridge in this analogy. I see the older brother as a toll booth attendant, an iron curtain checkpoint guard of sorts, demanding to see your papers and checking your qualifications. You can just tell that he is going to ensure that no one who doesn't follow the rules as well as he has, or the same rules he chooses to cherish, well, then they're not getting across. I've noticed something in the past decade or so that I hadn't seen much since Anita Bryant slipped from fame, around the time I met my wife is a weird coincidence. I see people introduced as Christians on TV, radio, podcasts, some are being interviewed, some are giving speeches. More and more, though, you hear less and less about grace. Almost all of the talk is to clearly specify who is not welcome, not allowed, undeserved. Worse, on those rare occasions when those interviews include someone willing to quote Jesus directly, perhaps with parables like this one, the response sounds indignant. It's an awful lot like, well, that son of yours wasted all your property on prostitutes when he comes back home, and you kill the prize calf for him? Or even worse than that, you rarely hear recognition that we are all God's children, with the choice of expressions like, this son of yours, when church denominations get together to debate dogma. When we first looked at the parable of the prodigal son in church earlier in the year, I asked a question that I often ask when reading the Bible. Who are we in this story? Are we a directional sign pointing the lost and confused onto this cross-shaped bridge? 
Or does the Church Universal today erect more no-trespassing signs than anything else, at least at some of the entrances? And you know which entrances I'm talking about. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 23, verses 13 and 14, addressing the same types of people as the older brother. How terrible for you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You lock the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. But you yourselves don't go in, nor do you allow in those who are trying to enter. Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know about you, but I think the older brother would lock the door to keep his wayward sibling out. And clearly, he was refusing to join the party himself. To me, though, both of these sons are lost. One may be prodigal in the sense of being extravagant, wasteful, and reckless. But both are lost because both are ungrateful. The younger son, knowing he wasn't going to take over for his father, demanded what he thought he deserved and walked away from the family. The older seems to take far too much pride in what he had earned through birthright, what he deserved. He's a bit like an ungrateful would-be friend who gets a present and demands to know, what do I owe you? No, I insist. What do I owe you? I won't be in anyone's debt. I'm my own man. What's mine is mine. What do I owe you? The problem is, you can't put a price on grace. It is, by definition, undeserved. I'm going to take one last turn here, and I put it at the end for a reason. I could stop right now and avoid controversy. But I also want to end with stronger words than mine. What can we take from this parable if we rightly view the prodigal son as the black sheep of his family? How does the father respond to this kid's reckless behavior? How does the older brother? Father says to this black sheep, Black lives matter. Older son says, No, no, all lives matter. Bear with me. There is a desperate need by some in our society when these triggering incidents happen to justify. They long to find reasons why the dead person had it coming, so to speak. If they can't find one, then many of them will fabricate some proof that a kid playing in the park or a man buying a toy for his kid's birthday got what he or she deserved. I saw a blog earlier this month, or that month, by Matt Michelatos called Another Dead Person of Color. Sad to say, I have no idea how old it was. It's, this could be new. It could have been written at any point in the last two or three years. I kind of doubt that it goes back to the 1960s, though. But we haven't made as much progress since then as some people seem to suggest. Here are the words of Michelatos from NorvalRogers.com slash another dead person of color. And I do have to laugh. Norval Rogers is a reference to Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. How did they find him guilty so quickly? He must have done something wrong. The authorities beat him, his face a bloody pulp. He must not have followed their instructions. His friends tried to help him escape the police. Surely a sign of his guilt. He was arrested, tried, and convicted. This does not happen to innocent men. He received the death penalty. We need not mourn a criminal. In the morgue within 24 hours of being arrested, justice is swift. He had no money. He lacked personal responsibility. He had no home. 
he was probably mentally ill. He was always stirring up the crowds. A troublemaker, a rabble-rouser, a thug. Could it be that he was innocent? We wash our hands of his blood. Perhaps his only crime was that he spoke truth to power. He should have been satisfied with his lot. He promised good news for those on welfare. He should have taught them to manage their money. He made the rich and powerful nervous. He should have kept his mouth shut. He pointed out their injustice, how they created poverty, how they protected their wealth. The poor should not instruct the rich. The powerless know nothing of power. His name was Jesus. We don't care to know his name. His name was Jesus. That has nothing to do with us. His name was Jesus, and he was innocent. If you do nothing wrong, you're safe. His name was Jesus, and he was unjustly arrested. The police were just doing their jobs. His name was Jesus, and corrupt politicians approved his death. You don't understand how politics work. Compromises are necessary. His name was Jesus, and the religious leaders argued for his destruction. That would never happen today. His name was Jesus. He gave up his power so he could speak for the powerless. May God protect us from such a fate. His name was Jesus. He gave up his authority to walk among the most vulnerable. May we be kept safe. May we be protected from such a thing. His name was Jesus. He became nothing. He became obedient unto death. He was a fool to give up his power. He was insane to step away from his wealth, his security. Two thousand years later, and we still speak of him, but we would not recognize him bleeding on the street. Two thousand years later, we claim to follow him, but our feet are slow to walk his path. We are desperately afraid we might become like him. If he were in prison today, would we visit him? If he were without food, would we give him a glass of water? If he were arrested unjustly, mistreated by authorities, would we speak? Or would we pass his broken body on the street so we could get to church on time for worship? Another Dead Person of Color by Matt Michelados Luke 15 is about recovering lost things. Sheep, coins, sons. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus is telling us that both of these sons were lost. One looked at his father's kingdom financially, as resources. It was money to burn on wild women and fun, to quote some Johnny Cash lyrics. The other looked at his father's kingdom as an empire, something he could control now in his own way, and lead sometime in the future as his inheritance. Both completely missed the true wealth of their father's kingdom. I told you I'd get back to this. Clearly, the real kingdom here is more about love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, and wisdom. So how do we avoid their mistakes? The focus needs to be less on what we think we deserve and more about inheriting this father's wisdom and love as the truly enduring kingdom. So be it. Or, worded more succinctly, amen. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com. So that was Deserve 
delivered earlier this year as a message to a congregation in a Midwestern city. But I would not be surprised if there's a lot of people who, especially those who consider themselves to be politically active Christians, your Christian nation type of evangelical Christian, who could listen to that and not find themselves in the message, who would be so quick to align themselves with well, God the Father or some other member of the family that they wouldn't find themselves in either one of the two sons and would fail to see completely how their sense of privilege separates them from the direct you know, mission of God. Jesus telling us that he had come to bring the kingdom of heaven with him here and now, and how we would know him when we saw him, how we would be following in his footsteps would be to make sure that we were feeding the hungry, providing shelter for the homeless, visiting those who were sick and in prison. And this is a standard, of course, that we seem to be failing miserably at today. And so miserably, in fact, that I've gotten a fair amount of feedback in the last 12 months from Christians who would tell me that taking in people at their moment of desperate need is somehow not only not Christian in their worldview, but arguably anti-Christian in their worldview. I'm going to do a blog reading from my own blog at inappropriateconversations.org as a case in point. There's a category index on the right side of the homepage for Inappropriate Conversations, right below the calendar, that starts off, the first entry in that category list, is articles. Articles is where the blog posts that I put up for uh, Inappropriate Conversations can be found. It's not all podcasts, uh, either Walk the Earth in format or Inappropriate Conversations in format. And this one I posted almost a year ago, November 21st, 2015, and I named it Candy Coated Apostasy. It was my response to a meme that was circulating, showing a bunch of M&Ms and saying, here is 10,000 M&Ms, 10 of them are poisoned. Who wants to eat a handful? Now, do you see the problem? Perhaps the central theme of inappropriate conversations in recent years has been this. We can do better, and we must do better. The meme I'm sharing solely to support this commentary says, Here is 10,000 M&Ms. Ten of them are poisoned. Who wants to eat a handful? Now, do you see the problem? I see many problems, as a matter of fact. Americans aren't that good at grammar and punctuation, especially when it comes to social media. Twitter forces the issue with a 140-character limitation. Meme management is just as bad or worse. Americans aren't that good at math. What if I told you that we actually have more than 750,000 of these candies and none of them has been poisoned? With that in mind, why the scare tactic? You don't need to hear about this from me. Online friends have explained this. To anybody with ears to hear and eyes to read, this has been covered many times in the last 11 months. Americans are not that good at vocabulary. I'm sure we've already heard from people who cannot make the legal distinction between the words asylum and refugee. Americans aren't that good at geography and history. Franklin Graham, for example, can't decide if Russians are our enemies, communism, socialism, totalitarianism, these are bad, or an example we must follow. Putin, after all, is strongly committed to Graham's Christian value of rounding up all the gays. Don't get me wrong. Middle East politics and history are challenging. That's why we shouldn't impose a Western genre storyboard on current events and insist on costuming all the players with either black or white cowboy hats. We can do better. We must do better. 
The area of greatest opportunity, though, might be that a large number of Christians in this Christian nation aren't that good at Christianity. I acknowledge that these words sound hard. If so, consider this a get-behind-me-Satan moment, referring to Mark chapter 8. You see, I'm not talking about an understanding of Christianity that comes from years of seminary study. This This isn't even what I'd call Christianity 201. No, this should be so obvious to the faithful that it's almost a cliche. I'll tell you what I mean next, but the concepts go back to Jesus himself. Redemption, forgiveness, love, faith, atonement. We're talking about Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and becoming Paul as a result. It's in our jargon about God not calling the qualified, but qualifying the called. We shed legitimate tears of joy, and often because of some charlatans get accused of faking it with the theatricality of snake oil salespersons, when someone shares her or his testimony about God reaching into lives and touching hearts. So often this comes from unexpected intervention, where the Holy Spirit uses the faith of one believer to overcome the fear of foreign things and people to share agape. In John 1, the first epistle of John, the writer makes a comparison between a faith that overcomes all fear and brings love into the world with something he refers to as antichrist. This antichrist is not a person so much as an attitude. Often out of fear, it rejects things like redemption, forgiveness, love. It lacks empathy to such a degree that an antichrist worldview rejects atonement, even to the extent of denying that there is a Holy Spirit or that God really has the power to convert. This is apostasy. It's a renunciation of biblical Christianity. It rejects not just the words, but even the mission of Jesus Christ. By embracing fear over faith, it puts a seriously flawed human solution, represented by an equally flawed confectionery analogy, over everything Jesus commanded in Matthew 28 and warned us against in Matthew 25. So let's walk through this meme. False Assumption 1. The poisoned M&M comes into the factory that way, rather than perhaps being contaminated after the fact. False Assumption 2. Contamination is permanent, and neither time nor elements of packaging and preparation have any hope of mitigation. False Assumption 3. Toxins are all-powerful, and immune systems are either non-existent or pathetically weak. Note that I'm addressing this from an inappropriate conversation's perspective. I am not, in other words, telling people that it is okay to eat tainted food or handle poisonous snakes. No. Politically, I am a radical moderate. I reject the two major political parties for their corruption, which is both shared and competing. Religiously, I am a Protestant Christian. I used to be part of a a denomination that was a reform of a reform of Catholicism that itself could barely be aligned with the Protestant Reformation. I now attend a church that sees even less reason to play any of those church doctrine games. Socially, I strive, and fail from time to time, to view and treat people with something I've heard called unconditional positive regard. I cover that concept in more detail in Walk the Earth 32, if you wanted to look back at inappropriateconversations.org. Above all, though, I consider myself a Christ follower. I still would if there were no no available religious or political affiliations. I reject groupthink because my faith is mine. 
It's built upon the command of Jesus to love God with all of my mind, not merely my heart and soul. Disclaimers aside, this message is two-sided. Don't play with poison, but don't assume that everything you don't fully comprehend is poison. Reply to assumption one. That was that poisoned M&Ms come into the factory that way, rather than being contaminated after the fact. We know that a high majority of radicalization within the United States happens after people live here for a significant amount of time, not before. This may say something about the screening process that is already in place, clearly effective, and in no need of either abandonment or much fortification. Our goal needs to be treating people with sufficient dignity and respect so that they don't develop a strong desire to retaliate. Second-class citizens tend to behave with less regard for the welfare of first-class citizens. We solve this by doing all we can to eliminate discrimination, segregation, and pungent forms of majority rule privilege that hold our society back by coddling a small group of people with a my country rather than an our country perspective. Reply to assumption two that contamination is somehow permanent. Jesus. That's my reply to assumption two. I'm tempted to stop right there. Jesus. If you don't see the problem behind this assumption, then you don't know Jesus. The good news is that this isn't a permanent problem. The gospel is meant to be shared. I strongly believe that it should be understood by all, including people who have and will continue to reject its claims. I also think that we should strive to understand a variety of other things for similar reasons, including Islam, socialism, human sexuality, physics. I could go on. Reply to Assumption 3. This was the false assumption that toxins are all-powerful and that there is no immune system that can deal with it. I'll use this reply to cover more of 2 and 3 at the same time, for any who are slow to understand. Not everyone who reads blog posts here or listens to inappropriate conversations or Walk the Earth podcasts are Christians. Fair enough, because not all Christians understand what Jesus is said to have taught in the Bible either. Jesus does not teach that some of us are inherently so good that we are close to perfection. Delicious, if I may, to tie in with the M&M analogy. He also doesn't teach that some of us are so bad that we're beyond saving. I understand that some Calvinists tightrope across a fine line here, but I would ask them to lean away from apostasy. Instead, a biblical theology teaches that none of us are as sweet as candy-coated chocolate. We all fall short of a standard called holiness in Christian jargon. Edibility as a concept doesn't come from the raw ingredients. It doesn't matter if those ingredients are grown locally or imported from Syria. Throughout theism, in fact, it is clearly taught that God is the chef. This isn't some small side issue. As Christians, our trust in the Lord can have a devastating impact on how we treat others. More how we treat others can either bring them closer to God or push them further away. And some of the people we push away, if only because we treat them as hopeless outcasts, unworthy of our thoughts, much less our help, can become terrible enemies rather than wonderful brothers and sisters. I use that phrase intentionally. As a Gentile who knows that I have brothers and sisters in Christ because I am one with them in Christ. Paul committed his life's work to ensuring that we would all know this. There is no Jew or Gentile at the foot of the cross. If we believe what we say and sing, that every knee shall bow, 
then there is no formerly Muslim or always been Christian at the foot of the cross either. Let's talk about Paul for a moment. If this Eminem analogy is anything more than borderline blasphemy from a New Testament perspective, then we would have to insist that Saul the Christian hunter could never, ever become Paul the evangelist to the world. Never. Once a tainted candy, always a tainted candy. The problem is far worse than that. Many politically active Christians aren't merely suggesting that Jesus would never intervene in the life of a man like that on the road to Damascus. More, we shouldn't trust the words of people who suggest that our Lord might just work in mysterious ways. In one of my favorite sermons since I started the Walk the Earth process that is documented in one of the podcasts on the feed here, inappropriateconversations.org, the pastor referred to the Paul problem. What is the Paul problem? Well, maybe it can be summed up with a question. Can we trust Jesus? Should we believe what Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 to 17? Is it possible that truly evil people can be transformed by Christ? Really? I mentioned the answers to these questions early in the article with concepts like redemption, forgiveness, atonement, and faith. To deny the conversion of Saul to Paul in Acts chapters 8 and 9 is to deny Christ. You know, I've seen other memes recently that quote Jesus as saying, He will deny us before his heavenly Father if we deny him in our earthly walks. That isn't about what I might call Christian branding, flying our denominational flags or U.S. flags, singing onward Christian soldiers or anything like that. We deny Christ before others when we say that a poison M&M will always be a poison M&M and will always pose a threat and no almighty God or human love could ever possibly overcome it. We deny Christ when we say that, proclaiming that we might say his name like some magic words, but have no regard for what he taught. When we call concepts like redemption into question. In that sermon more than a year ago, the pastor described the Paul problem as the legitimate fear of early Christians about whether they could trust the conversion rumor they were hearing. Was it just a trick? This was, after all, Saul the executioner. In Acts 9, the Paul problem has an Ananias answer. This isn't easy. Ananias was frightened. He had every reason to be frightened. But he didn't let his fear overcome his faith, and neither should we. Christians must not tell the world, wittingly or unwittingly, that our Paul problem is bigger than our Ananias answer. And that is where we are right now. American Christianity is today telling the world that the Holy Spirit either does not exist or cannot intervene. So many of us, too many of us, simply don't believe that Jesus can turn a tainted M&M into something we'd mix into our own candy bowls. I've said before in past Inappropriate Conversations podcasts, perhaps even on Walk the Earth, including a long and detailed episode called Inappropriate Conversations 150, Opening the Scriptures, that I am conservative when it comes to Scripture. This isn't a political statement, and it certainly isn't any form of alignment with denominational tradition. It means that I take Scriptures seriously. People look for shortcuts. It's human nature. Most of what memes like this one get wrong are based on the desire to be brief and incisive. Well, brief and incisive, clearly not my strength. It's just so easy to call a bad thing bad and make it go away. 
It's just as easy, though, to pretend that nothing matters. So let me repeat myself. I'm not suggesting that America drop our guard. We shouldn't act as if the world isn't a dangerous place. We just need to be careful to avoid the other extreme. If we stop being the things that made this country great, and more than just a bit unique at its inception, then what is it worth? Security, as a word, is all about securing and preserving. That's the opposite of giving up the heart of this nation by scratching the words off the Statue of Liberty or scrawling don't as graffiti over the send these line in that poem. As a Christian, I'm also not making the mistake of saying that just because Jesus has the power to forgive any sin, that he therefore must forgive any sin. No, Jesus himself said that there was one sin that would not be forgiven. From a biblical perspective, it is just one. Quoting Mark chapter 3, verse 28, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus of Nazareth. Who is questioning God's power in this current situation? Who is denying that there is a Holy Spirit or implying that there are some things we just can't trust the Lord to do? Who is denying Christ by refusing to swallow when he says, Take and eat. Mistakes will be made here, don't doubt that. Some lives may be lost. Some destruction seems inevitable. We are fallible humans, and we are going to miss something. All of that can be forgiven. What can't be forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I would suggest that denying the redemptive power of Jesus crosses that line. I'll paraphrase something I've heard ascribed in the past to David Winter. Those who experience your love today will be much more interested in your faith tomorrow. What about those who experience our hate today? What will happen with those who are told that would they have to at least pretend to adopt our faith today, even against their will and a life or death decision point, before we will even extend to them minimally decent courtesy, let alone love? There are foul-tasting M&Ms in our current candy bowl, probably from our own attempt to save a few bucks and knock off the recipe. Let's not pretend that our biggest problem as Christians in this nation will come from external threats. Some of us are betraying Christ. Compared to that, nothing else matters. If and as you were led, please join me in prayer. O loving Lord, I think you know that one of the things that I missed most when I made the journey from a church that was familiar but losing its way to a brand new place with people I didn't know, was the opportunity to be heard, the chance to speak, the ability to answer questions, and and the permission to raise my questions. And I thank you, Lord, for guiding me on this walk to a place where I've been given the opportunity to share thoughts and ideas. I've been given the freedom to raise questions and to even share doubts. Thank you for that, Lord. Otherwise, I don't know that I wouldn't still be walking. This walk started with the notion that I would know when you put me where you wanted me to be. At this point, Lord, I feel like that that's a statement I can make, that you've put me where you want me to be. Lord, there are many people who are lost. I'm often sensitive to how often the people who seem to have lost their way are living within what we call Christianity today, and not people who have made a willful decision to part company or provide some protection for themselves by not exposing themselves to what is often 
a complete lack of empathy or even an open expression of, of hatred. So, Lord, let me continue to follow your path and do your will as I try to find the lost, knowing that there are two kinds, if I've answered this question today correctly, Jesus. There are those who are lost because they've walked away from the faith, but worse, there are those who are lost because they're chasing the others out. Thank you, Lord, for calling this to my attention. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak and to share. In your holy name I pray. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. Next on Walk the Earth, whether Jesus accomplished a micro-personal goal or a macro-theological purpose through his crucifixion. Thanks for listening.